0: Out of Philly, this is the Reluctant Theologian Podcast. I am your host, Dr. R.T. Mullins from the University of Lucerne. Today I'm opening up the mailbag to address some listener questions. Many of you send messages in through the website, and I read all of them. I don't always know what to say, but every now and then I feel a bit of inspiration to respond sincerely or sarcastically, because it could go either way. So today I have some listener questions about Barbie, the abuse of power in churches, Catholic theology, and the existence of God. If you'd like to support the show, you can donate money to my Patreon account or my coffee account. Any donation amount helps me out in so many ways. I greatly appreciate the support that people have already offered. If you have questions or topics you'd like to hear on the show, you can send me a message at rtmullins.com. Well, ready or not, here I am chatting about a vulgar display of power. Enjoy. Act 1, Subtle Abuses of Power. All right, Rodney, have me the first listener question. Okay. God and time in Islamic... Hang on a second. Rodney, Rodney. These are... What are these notes? What are you doing? Nope. Hang on. Sorry, everyone. I just finished recording a video with Ramon Harvey on God and time in Islamic thought. Uh, Rodney's getting the notes screwed up. It's it's been a really busy day over here like before lunch. We were preparing for this dialogue for the blogging theology YouTube channel. It's uh, it's a really big Islamic theology channel. And the dialogue with Ramon is like, it's really cool. It's really interesting. We put a lot of thought into it. And that that video should be available in a few days. So keep an eye out for it. But Rodney, give me the give me the real questions. Okay. okay. Sorry. anyway, here is the first actual. The actual first listener question. So I had several comments about the episode on disability with my sister. So Jane, she's a supporter of the show. She said she loved the episode with Kelly. And she said that Kelly is a sweet person. (laughs) Well, Jane, let me tell you something. You are dead wrong. Kelly, Kelly is a little brat. Let me, let me, okay. She really is. Let me, let me show you something here. So check out this birthday card that Kelly got for me. So on the front of this birthday card, it says, did I fart in this card? Maybe, this is what my sister gave me for my birthday. My sister sent me a fart card for my birthday, a fart card. Does that really sound like something a sweet little angel would do? No, 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 of course not. All right, what else we got here? okay so scott williams oh okay so scott we've had scott on the show you might remember the episode on disability and medieval philosophy good one good episode so scott said he loved the episode with kelly and then he had a question about the saints and if the saints will be disabled in heaven so there is this stream of thought within the christian tradition that says that the saints and martyrs will have their wounds for all of eternity their wounds are kind of like glorious battle scars or trophies Uh, To be honest, I'm pretty skeptical about this. And I know it's, like, a big theme in medieval art. You will see these martyrs in heaven carrying around their organs. And then John the Baptist is, like, carrying around his decapitated head. And when it's Halloween, like, I, I think that's pretty cool. But right now it's August. And I'm not feeling particularly spooky right now. So I just want to reject this entirely. All right, next question. Alan. Alan is a supporter of the show. He writes... I've been enjoying your podcast a lot intellectually. The most recent episode where you address the American indifference towards uh, preserving the intellectual Judeo-Christian heritage proved to me that you are in this for the right reasons way to go. Well, okay. let me tell you something. I don't know what reasons you think I have for doing this, but I can assure you that my reasons are not righteous. I went into philosophical theology purely for the money. Hang on a second, Rodney. Rodney's handing me something a Twitter community note how did how did Twitter already fact check this what okay well what okay what does it say okay. sir Twitter community notes okay some users in the community would like you to know that there is no money to be made in philosophical theology okay you know well man this episode hasn't even aired and Twitter's already fact-checking us whatever it's fine it's fine now just give me the next listener question it's cool Okay. This one comes from Derek. All right. Let's see what my boy Derek's saying. Just wanted to drop a quick note and say, thanks for your most recent podcast. I love the commentary on Christian education, the state of political discourse and Barbie. All of them were spot on. And frankly, I don't often hear sane takes on any of this. I will add only that. I thought Oppenheimer was fine. Christopher Nolan sure knows how to build a moment, but I don't think he's a good storyteller. But I digress. Anyway, hope you're well. Thanks for churning out excellent podcast episodes. Derek. Whew. Derek over here giving some spicy takes. Christopher Nolan's not a good storyteller. Now, let's let's not say things that we cannot take back later, you know. OK, well, maybe maybe the story of Oppenheimer maybe was a bit difficult to follow at times. All right, OK, well, maybe Inception didn't always make sense. OK, OK, may, maybe some point at some point in the Interstellar story. Like, the storyline just gets propelled by pure magic? Okay, okay, maybe, you know what? Maybe, maybe Derek's not entirely wrong here. Anyway, I got, I got quite a few messages about the Barbie versus Oppenheimer episode. A lot of people said they really appreciated the commentary. People said it was authentic and eloquent, uh, and I'm really glad to hear that. I, I, was, I was actually really nervous about putting that episode out. It's way more political than I typically go on this show. It was a stretch for me to do any sort of cultural commentary because I usually, well, I usually just save the cultural commentary for my wife and some close friends. I just don't trust the average American to not get triggered these days. So I tend to keep a lot of this to myself. So I'm, I'm glad that people enjoyed the episode. Uh, I've got another message, though, about this episode that I want to spend some more time on. So one of our listeners named Angela said she loved the episode on Barbie. And she also told me that I still have my boyish good looks. So, Angela, thank you. You are clearly an angel. Now, anyway, here is something interesting that Angela pointed out. She says that I may have missed something in my review of the Barbie movie. Uh, And in fact, I think she's right. I did miss something. So so let's listen to what she says here. So she writes, You might not be in touch with the whole Christian complementarianism subtext like, Jezebel, get back in your box. And the way the long, epic speech about expectations for women lands for women from fundamentalist backgrounds. I am totally in touch with it and minister every day to people abused internally or by other Christians with toxic theology. Since you're a professional thinker, I heartily suggest you read some sympathetic and thoughtful reviews of Barbie by Christian women that are out there. Thankfully, the patriarchy is pretty dead in wider society, but plenty of rather evil men are trying desperately to reinstitute it in Christian circles, with shrill screeching using a lot of scripture twisting, too. Anyway, that's what Angela said. And, and again, I, I think she's right. I did miss part of this subtext here. I found her message interesting for many different reasons, one of which is that I have listened to loads of different reviews of the Barbie movie from conservative and liberal and everything in between everyone seems to disagree on what exactly to make of the movie. And I find that really fascinating. Like so many different parts of the movie, they just hit people in different ways. And so the part of the movie that Angela is mentioning is the one that I did not comment on in the previous episode. So there's the scene where the CEO of Mattel is trying to get Barbie to, to go back to Barbie land. He starts out gently trying to persuade Barbie to get in this life-size Barbie doll box and Barbie, she starts to go in there, but then she hesitates. And when she hesitates, the CEO screams, get in your box, Jezebel. And it hits a really funny moment because it's so startling. You see the CEO go from really calm and collected to just like just losing it, just outright losing it. And one of the things that is so fascinating to me is that is the way that it plays with stereotypes that are pushed to their extremes, because that's a big part of the, the Barbie movie in general. Just playing with these stereotypes that are pushed to their extremes. And there's an interesting stereotype here on display in this scene. I don't know exactly how to describe it, but the phenomena I have in mind, it goes a little something like this. Imagine a person in power who has very strictly defined gender roles and a clear vision for how society should be organized. This person starts by laying out lots of different, seemingly innocuous slogans and ideas. Where exactly these slogans and ideas lead, well, it's unclear, because they're implicit. They're just suggestive. They can sound good. They can sound acceptable, you know, on the surface, because the real meaning of the slogan is opaque. Everything seems fine until it is not. Everything seems acceptable until it's too late. And once the real meaning of the slogan is unveiled, well, the damage is done. I want to give you some examples of this in a moment, but before I do that, I want to mention something Angela said. She said that I might be out of touch with different Christian complementarian circles. And Angela is is right about that. I am absolutely outside of the Christian complementarian circles, and I have been for quite some time. So I am not deeply in touch with how people have been harmed by this kind of thing. So I'm not going to notice a subtext like this in a movie right away. I mean, I have been to complementarian churches in the past uh, that had really good people there. When I did my master's at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, the complementarian versus egalitarian debate, that was a major topic of discussion. Well, it was a major topic of discussion for everyone who was doing a master's in divinity. I was doing a master's in philosophy of religion, so I just avoided that debate like a plague, you know. But everyone seemed to be having fairly civil debates about it at the time. And I had friends on both sides of the debate, and I, and I still do. So what I'm about to say should be taken with a grain of salt, because I am going to give you two examples of really bad church contexts where complementarianism goes horribly wrong. So to be clear, I am not. I am not giving an argument against complementarianism in general. I am just giving you examples of what I think Angela's pointing towards. Examples that make that scene in Barbie hit really hard for some people. So here's the first example. Some of you may have listened to the podcast called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. This is a fascinating investigation into Mars Hill and Mark Driscoll. And as some of you know, I almost became Mark Driscoll's ghostwriter. I was about to be given a contract to do all of the research and writing for Driscoll and Mars Hill, but then the church just imploded in the process. I mean, the, the church completely dissolved just a few months after my job contract fell through with them. If you want to hear some of the details of that story, you can check out an interview I did on Parker Sedekas' show. It's a really, It's a really wild story, and I'm grateful that I did not get involved with Mars Hill in the end. Anyway, as I listened to the first few episodes of The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, I often found myself confused. The podcast would focus in on some phrase or statement that Mark Driscoll would keep using— And the host of the show keeps making a big deal about it. And the music in the background makes it clear that this is like, you know, this is some sort of insidious message. But my first time hearing some of this stuff, I I mean, it didn't really seem like a big deal to me. Because remember what I said earlier about the stereotype I have in mind. This person starts out with seemingly innocuous phrases that do not have the clearest meaning. It's all fine and dandy until the true meaning is revealed. So here's an example. In the Mars Hill podcast, they focus a fair bit on how Mark Driscoll promoted sex in the church. He kept telling husbands and wives to have sex. And sex, it's important for a very healthy marriage. I don't know how many of you remember this, but this was actually really common in the early 2000s in the U.S. Like, a lot of churches were doing this. They would challenge married people in their congregation to have sex every day for a week or a month. And to be honest, I I mean, I don't really see the problem with it. Because the Apostle Paul, you know, if he says it, then it must not be too bad, right? Well, here's the thing. It is one thing to promote a good, healthy sex life. Like, in general, that's just a good thing. But the context, the context is so important. Is the context of this messaging in a safe environment? Or is it in the context of something bigger? As the Mars Hill podcast unfolds, you start to see that the messaging of sex is in a bigger context about women needing to be submissive. And personally, I don't think the podcast did the best job of bringing this to light in certain episodes. I think it took them like way too long to bring out how a lot of the messaging was all embedded in this context of controlling women. But to be fair to the host of the show, it really does take a while for this different network of slogans to come together and form a clear pattern and meeting. So consider it like this. Wives, have sex with your husbands. That slogan sounds fine, I mean. Wives, always be sexy for your husbands. Well, I mean, okay, that doesn't sound too bad, but, but that word always, that just seems unrealistic. Men, you should never sexually assault a woman. Oh, okay, well, I, I definitely agree with that. Husbands, be a real man. Well, sure, but I, I don't know what you mean by being a real man. Real men take care of the family so their wife doesn't have to work. Well... I mean, I'm not sure about that. Is that really realistic? It's not like money just grows on trees. I mean, the economy does not exactly cater to your particular brand of gender roles. And also, why should I think that women should always be in the home? I mean, doesn't the perfect wife in Proverbs engage in all sorts of business dealings? Wives need to always be submissive to their husbands. Well, okay, now hang, hang on a second. Where are you going with the slogan? A real man needs to control his wife. Okay, I, I finally see what you're up to here. You see, a network of slogans like this, it builds over time. And when it is placed in a very authoritarian and controlling environment like Mars Hill, the true meaning of these slogans, they start to become very clear. But by the time someone screams, get in your box, Jezebel, it's, it's too late. Far too much damage has been done. Many people have been harmed by incredibly detailed and just unrealistic gender roles. Let me give you another example of this. This example is very personal to me. This is from a church that I attended during my PhD. It's a clear example of the phenomena that I'm trying to describe. A series of subtle messages that seem, I guess, fine on the surface. They're used, but by the time the real meaning is unveiled, it's just too late and the damage has been done. So I attended a church in Scotland where there was a main preacher, but there was also a rotation of different people preaching. And sometimes some of my classmates would preach. And it was really nice to see this. I mean, the main preacher—he wasn't unhinged like Mark Driscoll. Uh, he is—he's a pretty okay guy for for the most part. But I think he got caught up in some really bad forms of complementarianism that were just being imported from America. And if I remember correctly, we were working through one of Paul's letters to the Corinthians. I just can't remember which one. The main preacher—he started using this slogan, "True love means giving up your rights." Let me say that again. True love means giving up your rights. I, I guess that's okay. Like, just on the surface, you know? But I, I don't know what it means. I didn't really know what it meant at the time. And I remember asking various people, and no one is, was entirely sure what it meant. One day I mentioned the slogan to someone who knew the preacher pretty well. True love means giving up your rights. And this person immediately said to me, Oh, Ryan, he's going to use that to oppress women. I, I thought this sounded a bit dramatic. And then also I knew that this particular individual did not get along well with the preacher. In fact, the preacher actually had very good reasons to not like this individual. So I thought that this plot to control women, I thought, you know, this is a bit much, this is just dramatic. It's over the top. But I, I was proven wrong. I really was. I was proven dead wrong on this. As we worked our way through Corinthians, the preacher kept saying, true love means giving up your rights. Yet each week, we would have someone else from the congregation preach, and so that slogan just wouldn't appear. Now, one week, we had a young woman give the sermon on a particular passage. She had written her master's dissertation on this passage, and she offered a really fascinating sermon. It was really cool to see her give the different interpretations of the verse in question. She was very, well, very well informed of the topic because, she, again, she did her master's dissertation on it. Now, then the next week rolls around, and the main preacher's back— but he wants to revisit the passage from the previous week. I thought this was a little bit odd, but you know, whatever. I mean, sometimes you got to revisit passages from the previous week, but then he starts saying again, true love means giving up your rights. At this point, this slogan has been repeated over and over again for about two months now. And I'm still just thinking, what on earth does this mean? Well, the preacher finally reveals the true meaning women have the right to speak in church. Women really do have the right to speak in church. Women really do have the right to take on various important roles in the church. Women do have all of those rights. They really do. But, and this is a very big but, but true love means giving up your rights. Now, the guy, he never comes right out and says what the implication of all this is, but the meaning is very obvious. For the first time in months, the guy finally makes a clear point with his message. Women, you have the right to speak, But true love means giving up your rights. So if you're really loving, if you really want to be loving, you need to remain silent. And you want to be loving, don't you? You want to love your neighbor, don't you? Don't you? Well, then give up your rights. This, this really hit me hard. I, I did not stop going to the church right away, but this really bothered me. One of my friends was doing a PhD in moral philosophy at the time, and we both attended this church. I remember having extensive conversation with him about about this and how I just thought this makes no sense. I mean, it's just it's just a stupid ethical system. Everyone has rights, but true love is in constant conflict with your rights. So you have to constantly give up your rights. I mean, this is just an incoherent moral universe. It makes no sense. And then also the, the emphasis of the message was it was only directed at women. The burden to give up your rights seemed to fall squarely on women. I was really bothered by this. I felt like, well, I felt like it spit in the face of the young woman who preached the week before. I mean, was she being unloving by sharing with us all of her biblical knowledge? I mean, that can't be right. Like I said, I did not stop going to the church at that point. I carried on and I had various conversations with the pastor. I was trying to get him to, like, I was just trying to get to know him more. I was trying to figure out, you know, was this just a one-time thing or was this really part of his worldview? Because look, I, I've worked in ministry before. I have seen pastors deliver very bad sermons. I don't want to judge too harshly because sometimes, you know, you just have a, you have an off week and you give a bad sermon, but it turns out this really was part of this guy's worldview. He had incredibly detailed and in my opinion, unrealistic gender roles. I don't even think your average complementarian would be on board with some of this stuff. I don't think your average complementarian has completely unrealistic gender roles like this guy did. But I don't really know, because I've not looked at this complementarian versus egalitarian debate in many years. Anyway, the breaking point for me was when we had some personal conversations. He kept telling me that I need to be a man, and that I wasn't acting like a man. My partner at the time was going through an identity crisis. She didn't know what she wanted from life. She was feeling very lost. Now, according to the pastor, this was my fault because as a man, I should know what she wants. Even when she herself has no idea what she wants. as a man, I should just know what she really wants. As a man, I should just tell her what will make her happy. As a man, I should just lead her into happiness. As a man, you get the idea. It just kind of continues on like that for a while. This was not a good conversation. This was a really horrible conversation it got very ugly at one point he told me that i was being illogical and i responded by saying i've actually taken a course in logic so you just don't know what you're talking about like i said it got it got really ugly now now to his credit to this guy's credit he did apologize to me a couple weeks later he said he was being too hard on me uh but at that point i i was done with this particular church What emerged was this really bizarre view about men and women that is damaging to everyone involved. Basically, men have to be in charge of absolutely everything because women have no autonomy. Apparently, the explanation for why women should not be in charge of anything is because they don't have any genuine autonomy. That's the view. And it gets worse. Women cannot be blamed for poor communication. They cannot be blamed for cheating. They can't be blamed for anything else because... I am the man and I am ultimately in charge. So guys, if your partner does something wrong, it's somehow your fault. Men have all the responsibility and women are completely infantilized. I'm sorry, but what is that? I mean, this, this is a worldview that is messed up on so many levels and it's it's deeply harmful to everyone. And like I said, this was the breaking point for me. I did not want to have anything to do with this place after that. So let me come back to Angela's point. She mentioned the deep harm that women have suffered because of really bad theology like this. I, I think I walked away from my experience relatively unscathed. I mean, it did, it did harm me. It did bring some harm to me, but thankfully I was able to move on from it. Whereas other people I know who have been in some contexts like this and some that are worse, they have been hurt so much worse by this kind of thinking. I mean I, I know women who have been deeply hurt by this. The idea that someone would have their faith robbed of them, just completely shattered by unrealistic and twisted ideas it it reminds me of what C.S. Lewis says about the importance of philosophy. We have to do good philosophy because there's so much bad philosophy out there. So Angela, God bless you for your ministry to these people who have been abused. Hang, hang on a second, Rodney. Rod, what is this? No, you were supposed to play Pantera. No, Pantera. Like I set up the whole, like you know, vulgar display of power reference like earlier on. What is this? Is this is Italian dance music. Did Emma put this up to you? Did Emma put you okay no look look Dr. Emanuela Sani is the scientific advisor for the show she's not the music advisor No nope, I I said Why I said kill, no, the music, kill the music kill the music kill the music just stop it stop it Oh my gosh This is No look look we talked about this we're going to do the Pantera bit not whatever you and Emma like like God Okay you know what actually the music kind of works. Okay, play it again. Play it again. Okay, you know, okay, you're right. Like, okay, that, that's, it's very catchy. It's a very catchy song. That's fine. That's fine. We'll just, we'll just leave this in. We'll forget about the Pantera bit. Whatever. Uh, act two, I guess we're doing. Okay. Yeah. All right. Here's the next issue I want to talk about. So I say this every now and then, but I think it's very important to emphasize. I keep saying that I do not like slogans that replace clearly stated ideas and arguments. Part of what makes slogans so bad is that the full meaning can be opaque. When a particular worldview is primarily driven by a network of slogans, I really think we're in trouble. We're in trouble because those slogans, they prevent us from seeing what is really going on. When they prevent us from asking critical questions they prevent us from really developing arguments think about the different issues in the american culture wars they are primarily driven by a network of slogans that cannot be developed into a systematic worldview this is because the worldview clashes that we are seeing they involve incomplete and underdeveloped worldviews there's no need to develop an argument to defend your worldview when you don't actually have a well-developed idea you just have this hodgepodge of random things that you want And you use quick gotcha slogans to like silence your opposition. Now, one of the things that makes this so dangerous is this. People who crave power, people who want to seize power at all costs, they will take advantage of this. And we've seen this countless times over the years. Some group will have a nice moral sounding slogan that they want to push. And on the surface, that slogan sounds perfectly acceptable. I mean, who could disagree with it? but the slogan keeps getting used in so many different contexts that the surface meaning does not make sense anymore. That is because the real purpose of the slogan is to hammer you over the head and just beat you into submission. This is very bad news for a liberal society that is meant to be based on equal rights, freedom, and tolerance. When bad movements within a liberal society take over for a limited time, they create a a lot of damage. One of the things that you're going to hear in the next episode... Is about how a variety of slogans are being used to undermine the value of a true liberal society i'm going to have an incredible interview with kevin valier about catholic integralism at the end of this month so keep an eye out for that now speaking of catholicism here is a listener question from jeff so jeff says hi ryan i love your work i'm a catholic theologian who's leaning heavily against the thomistic conception of god and I was wondering if you had resources of other Catholics who have a similar view to your own. Some Catholics have told me essentially that Thomism is dogma, while others, lay people, of course, they appreciate that I can give an account of the Incarnation that doesn't involve just repeating the Catechism, that I can put things in my own words. So, Jeff, that's a, that's a good question. Uh, now, to be honest, there are more sources than I can think to mention. I mean, the world of Catholic theology, it's actually incredibly diverse, It's way more diverse than what the Thomists want you to think. So, for example, Benedict Geke and Johannes Grossel, they're both Catholic. Benny is a panentheist, and Joe is an open theist. And then my boss, Giovanni Ventimiglia, he's a Catholic philosopher. He's a big fan of Aquinas. He's actually a first-rate Aquinas scholar, and he disagrees with all sorts of things that Aquinas affirms. He once told me that he agrees with 98% of my doctrine of God. I, I don't know how you arrive at a percentage like that, and I don't know what the other percentage that is that he disagrees with. I don't know what that is, uh, but but you know there you have it. And then uh, Thomas Ward, he's a Catholic philosopher, and he's pushing uh, Scotus, like John Scotus, uh, John Duns Scotus's ideas, very hard right now. Really good stuff. And then Elizabeth Johnson, she is a very famous Catholic theologian who's a panentheist. Now, in certain European Catholic circles, panentheism and process theology, they have a really strong hold. I've been at several conferences with Catholic theologians that hold a wide variety of views on God and, well, everything else. I mean, all that to say, Thomism is merely one brand of Catholic theology. So if you're a Catholic, don't let the Thomas bully you. All right, next question. This one comes from Marios. Marios writes, hi, Ryan, my name is Marios. Hello, Marios. How are you doing? How are you doing? No, it's a pleasure to meet you. I am a Christian with an interest in philosophy as a hobby. I do not have any philosophical or theological training. I've never taken any philosophy classes. I don't work in education, etc. So please excuse if anything in this email appears amateurish. I've been paying attention to your content on YouTube for a while and have consumed a fair amount of it. I don't know why you guys are consuming all the garbage I put out on YouTube. I don't know. Whatever. Anyway, Marios carries on. He says, I find your analysis of your topics compelling. So far as I can tell, your work appears to analyze different models of God, and I enjoy your treatments of the topics. For this reason, I'm interested in knowing if you have undertaken any written work on stages one and two of the various cosmological arguments, i.e. do you have published views on the various forms of cosmological arguments? I've skimmed your list of books and papers on your website, and it appears to me that your works assess questions like, what is God's relationship to time or love, you know, all assuming that God exists. I suppose I'm interested in hearing your views on whether cosmological arguments, like the Leibnizian or the Kalam, are successful in getting you to something approximating God. Thanks in advance, Marios. All right, this is a good question. It's going to be the final one for today's episode. So let me explain what Marios is talking about for those of you who are not familiar with this. So natural theology primarily focuses on what we can know about the nature and existence of God from reason and experience alone. Sometimes people will talk about two stages for, of an argument for the existence of God. And the idea is this. In stage one of the argument, you might try to establish that there's some sort of necessary being that explains some contingent fact or maybe a set of facts about the world. But what is this necessary being like? Well, stage one does not attempt to answer that question. Stage two tries to answer that question. So in stage two, you try to argue that this necessary being is God you try to establish different divine attributes like eternality, omnipotence, omniscience and perfect moral goodness. Now personally, I think this breakdown of how the arguments go, I think it's a bit artificial. I mean there are some arguments that really do work like this. So for example, William Lane Craig's full discussion of the Kalam cosmological argument, I mean it often works like this, as in you know stage 1 and stage 2. Craig first tries to establish that the universe must begin to exist. And then Craig tries to argue whatever caused the universe to exist must be God. So he does have this nice, neat distinction between stage one and stage two with the Kalam. But not all of Craig's arguments follow this breakdown into two clearly demarcated stages. Let me give you another example of this. So Richard Swinburne. Swinburne first wrote a book called The Coherence of Theism, where he argues that the idea of God is coherent and intrinsically plausible, Later on, he writes a book called The Existence of God. So what Swinburne does is first develop the idea of God as a hypothesis that we can test. Then he considers different lines of evidence for thinking that God exists or for thinking that God is the best explanation for the existence of the universe as, that we find ourselves in. So there's no clear stage one or two here in Swinburne's work. And then finally, consider Samuel Clark's cosmological argument. It's, it's very different from what most people describe. I mean, typically people just assume that Clark's cosmological argument, they'll say it's just like Leibniz's, but with a weaker principle of sufficient reason. And that's not quite right. Clark first argues that something must be eternal. Time is eternal. Time is God. (laughs) You might be thinking like, hang on a second, how do we get here? Yeah, you heard me right. Clark argues from something that something must be eternal to time is eternal to God is time. Then Clark goes through a series of different arguments to establish more attributes. In Clark's book on the existence and nature of God, it is a fascinating set of arguments that do not clearly fall into the schema of stage one or stage two arguments. So I get why a lot of YouTubers get really animated about the stage one and stage two schema. Like from a teaching standpoint, from like a pedagogical standpoint, like it's a really clear way. It's really useful. I just don't think that is how all of the arguments for the existence of God work. Also, I think that there is some some sort of confusion going on. A lot of times, and this is academics and uh, and lay people, this isn't like, you know, just, just lay people or YouTubers. A lot of times people, they're conflating arguments for the existence of God with methods for developing your model of God. So Jonathan Quanvig's recent book, Depicting Deity, he does a really good job at distinguishing these two different things. Now, both of these fall under the category of natural theology, but only one is trying to argue for the existence of God. At some point, I really need to do an episode about the difference between philosophical methods for developing a model of God and arguments for the existence of God. In fact, I should probably just do a whole episode on what I think about natural theology in general. Anyway, though, one way of seeing my research project is as a project in natural theology, I'm trying to identify different models of God and test them for internal coherence and test to see if they fit the world that we find ourselves in. That is not exactly giving evidence for the existence of God, but it is using reason to discern the nature of God. Now, by discovering a coherent model of God, or maybe even several coherent models of God, the very idea of God is shown to be more plausible than you might otherwise think. And then from there, you can start considering different arguments for the existence of God or seeing if a model of God adequately explains the existence of the world that we find ourselves in. I could say more, but I've already gone on for way too long in this episode. Let's just call it a day. And there you have it, another episode of the Reluctant Theologian Podcast. Stay tuned for more episodes on philosophical theology.